Welcome to the Russian Rulers Podcast, episode number 15, Ivan IV, The Early Years, Part 2. With her uncle Prince Mikhail Glinsky out of the way, Elena, Ivan IV's mother, and her lover Prince Ivan Obolensky became the real power in Russia. But in the background, a number of boyar families were plotting against each other and Ivan's mother. The boyar council, with 15 members, who were asked by Ivan's father, Vasily III, to watch over his son, had two powerful families within, the Belskis and the Shuiskis, both arch enemies. The Belskis were descendants of Ivan III through one of his daughters, as well as having blood relatives from the Grand Princes of Lithuania and Ryazan. The Shuiskis, who were noted for their violent and predatory nature, descended from the Grand Princes of Nizhny Novgorod, who came under the influence of the Grand Prince of Moscow in the early part of the 15th century, something that boiled under their skin. Elena was now despised by many of the boyars because of her murder of Prince Andrew, Vasily's brother, and all the other princes and boyars her regime arrested, tortured, and executed. On April 4, 1538, the one thing that Prince Obolensky feared happened. The young regent, Ivan's mother, dies after complaining about severe stomach pains. There have been debates amongst Russian historians as to whether she was poisoned or not. My opinion is that it looks awfully suspicious, as she was only 28 when she died, although appendicitis has, be has been suggested and would be consistent with the stomach pain. The historian Natalia Pushkareva, in her book, Women in Russian History, puts forth a theory that the Shuiskis were behind the poisoning. Whatever the reason for her death, this was not a good thing for her friends or Ivan. Within a week, Prince Obolinsky was captured, thrown into jail, and beaten to death. His sister, Agrafina, Ivan's beloved nurse and confidant, was taken away and sent to a nunnery far away from Moscow. Ivan and his brother Yuri were now orphans. Not yet eight, he was so traumatized by the death of his mother and loss of his beloved nurse that he could now be known as Ivan the Terrified. Only his grandmother Anna was left to coddle him, although her visits were only allowed on a very limited basis. Ivan recalls this time after his mother died in his writing. Quote, when I entered my eighth year, then our subjects achieved their design to have a kingdom without a ruler. They did not regard me as their sovereign, worthy of their loving attention, but instead they set about pursuing wealth and glory, and quarreled violently with one another. And what did they not do? How many boyars and well-wishers of my father, how many generals were killed by them? And they took my mother's treasures and carried them to the great treasury, furiously kicking them and poking them with sharp, sharp instruments and some of the treasures they divided among themselves. The Shuiskis made their grab for power, led by Vasily Shuisky, who in a move to solidify his position, married Ivan's first cousin, Anastasia, in a ceremony with Ivan being forced to give her away. Abandoned by everyone close to him, either through murder or exile, Ivan was forced to fend for himself. He roamed the Kremlin in rags, sometimes having to beg for food for himself and his brother Yuri. 
The only times Ivan was treated well was when a foreign dignitary showed up. They cleaned him up, dressed him in ceremonial robes, and sat him on the throne. When his use was done, they took off his robes and sent him back to his quarters to be ignored once again. The battle for power between the Belskis and the Shuiskis became increasingly violent. Murders and beatings took place all over the palace. Oftentimes Ivan would be in his room when thugs hired by the rival boyars would burst in, overturn everything, and take from him what they wanted. It is hard to imagine the impact of all this cruelty had on Ivan, but we do know that it is likely to be the reason he was to become the cruel and ruthless ruler he was known to history as. Because of the abuse he endured, unable to find retribution against those who mistreated him, was when he supposedly began to take his frustration out against animals. Some accounts say he tortured the animals, making believe they were his tormentors. As many psychologists know, children who torture animals become exceedingly cruel as adults, oftentimes turning sociopathic. During the Shusky rule, the Belskis drew close to Ivan, along with a number of clergymen, and one Fyodor Mishurin. On February 2, 1539, Vasily Shusky had enough, and had a number of Belskis rounded up, along with Ivan's good friend and Vasily III's former state secretary, Mishurin. Not able to kill any of the Belskis, Vasily had Mishurin skinned alive and left out on public display. Once again, a close friend of Ivan was murdered. But the feuding families had to put a stop to their conflicts as a new enemy, an enemy to both families and Russia as well, was approaching the Crimean Horde in 1541. Now here is where I begin to call the Mongols Tartars, as they are now fully blended between the Mongols and the Turks. What was troubling about the invading armies of the Tartars was one of the people leading them was one Simeon Belsky, who felt betrayed by Moscow. Khan Saip Gurey was convinced he could bring Moscow to its knees, especially having an insider like Simeon by his side. He sent a letter to the now ten-year-old Ivan, in which he states, quote, I shall come upon you. I shall stand before Moscow in your estate on the Sparrow Hills. I shall let loose in my army in all directions. I shall enslave your lands. Gray had a formidable army, Turkish heavy gunners, Mongol horsemen, Tartar archers, and numerous foot soldiers. But unlike in the 1200s, Russia's army wasn't disorganized, and their weaponry was vastly improved since the last horde invasion. On the afternoon of July 30th, 1541, the Tartars reached the Oka River. Khansaip Gurey, on a hill overlooking the battlefield, felt quite confident at first, but then saw something that must have made him shudder. Columns and columns of Russian troops shining in the mid-afternoon sun were coming. Simeon Belsky assured the Khan that the fight was going to be an easy one. He lied. Having built pontoons to cross the river, the Khan decided to press on. First, the Turkish cannoneers let loose, and then the Tartar archers shot so many arrows that the skies are said to have darkened. The Russians were wavering, but held as thousands of new troops arrived. 
Despite the bombardment, the Russian troops stayed firm and weathered the storm. What was it that made the Russian armies act so bravely that day? A letter, purportedly from Ivan, came before the battle which said, quote, If it should happen that the Khan succeeds in crossing the river, then you should hold fast for the sake of the holy churches and orthodox Christians and fight the Tartars with God's help. I shall reward you and your children, and those of you whom God shall take will have their names entered in the book of life, and I shall reward to their wives and children. The effect on the troops was inspiring, knowing that if they died in the field, their families would be taken care of. Looking across the river, the Khan held a war council and decided to retreat that night. They headed south toward the city of Pronsk and laid siege to the heavily fortified city. The Khan needed a victory, any victory, to regain face. The city held, despite a delegation from the Khan, informing him that the Tartar army would stay until they surrendered. The commander of the town garrison replied, This town was built by the will of God, and therefore it cannot be taken without God's will. But the Khan should be patient. Soon the Grand Prince's officers will be following in the footsteps of the Tartars. Try as he might, the Khan was unable to capture the city. His troops captured a man from the town and tried to get information from him about the feelings of the inhabitants. He replied that soon the whole of the Russian army would appear, so everyone inside was in very good spirits. The Khan panicked and fled. The Russian army did arrive shortly thereafter to find no one to fight. The city was saved. The Tartars were driven back, and once again Russia was safe. That is, until the family feuding began once again. Vasily Shusky had died, replaced by a vicious and corrupt member of the prince's family, one Andre. Early on, he had the Metropolitan replaced with a hand-picked successor, an old man, Macarius. Andre thought he could control this older man easily. He was to be proven wrong. Even though he was considered a hero to the people and the army because of his letter, Ivan was once again mistreated, as he writes years later. The Shuiskis treated us, myself and my brother, as though we were foreigners or the most wretched menials. What sufferings I endured through lack of clothing and from hunger! For in all things my will was not my own. I had no will. Everything was done contrary to my will in a manner unbefitting my tender years. I recall one incident. I and my brother were playing together when we were quite young, and there was Prince Ivan Vasilievich Shusky sitting on a bench, his elbows on my father's bed, his leg up in a chair, and he did not even incline his head toward us, either in a parental manner or as a master, nor did he show any humility towards us. Who can endure such arrogance? We can see in his writing the anger and dislike for the Shuiskis. It is said that he studied carefully how he was going to get his revenge. Prince Andre made sure Ivan had no confidants, isolating him from everyone. Macarius carefully cultivated a friendship with the now 13-year-old Grand Prince, giving Ivan growing self-confidence. Ivan, though, was seething internally, biding his time, a time which was to come very soon. On December 29, 1543, 
with Prince Andrei smugly attending an audience without any of his guards, so confident in his power, Ivan struck. He had men loyal to him arrest Andrei and had him literally thrown to the dogs and killed. Ivan was 13 and he had committed his first murder. A chronicle edited by Ivan himself said, the boyars committed many shameful acts in the presence of the Grand Prince and offended his dignity. Another Muscovite writer added, from this time the boyars began to fear the Grand Prince and became obedient to him. For the first time in his short life, Ivan was now in control. Next week, we'll have the coronation of Ivan IV as Tsar of all Russia, along with the gradual unleashing of the monster within. Now, for this week in Russian history, August 8th through August the 14th. In 1323, the Treaty of Notburg between Sweden and Novgorod was signed, which allows Russia to regulate the northern border for the first time. 1629, Tsar Alexei I of Russia was born. In 1669, Tsarina Yudosha Lopkohina of Russia, first wife of Peter the Great, was born. In 1824, Maria Alexandrovna, also known as Marie of Hesse, Tsarina of Russia, and wife of Alexander II, was born. In 1904, the Russo-Japanese War, the Battle of the Yellow Sea between the Russian and Japanese battleship fleets, commences. One year later, in 1905, the peace negotiations begin in Portsmouth for the Russo-Japanese War. And in 1953, the Soviet atomic bomb project commences with the detonation of Joe 4, the first Soviet thermonuclear weapon. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please visit the websites at russianrulers.podhoster.com, markchouse.com, become a Facebook friend at Russian Rulers History Podcast, ask a question, make a suggestion, leave a comment, and as always, Tasvidania y spasiba bolshoya.